This is Yes and Marketing, the podcast for people who believe that great ideas can come from anywhere. I'm your host, Steve Pokras. Join me for conversations with eclectic marketers and creative thinkers. Yes and Marketing is brought to you by Verblio, the friendliest content creation platform in the business. This week, I'm talking with Drew Neiser. Drew is a go-to thought leader in B2B marketing and is frequently featured in media and CNBC to Forbes. He is the founder and CEO of Renegade, an agency that's been helping brands and winning awards since 1996. He's also the founder of CMO Huddles, the fastest growing community of B2B CMOs, in addition to hosting a top-rated podcast and authoring two books. I was excited to have Drew on the show to pick his brain on a few topics he's gone deep on, including the four characteristics of successful CMOs, how to bake distinctness into your company culture, what most brands get wrong about their purpose, and his own litmus test for evaluating the content he creates. Drew and I spoke on March 17th, 2022. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Drew Neiser, welcome to Yes and Marketing. Hey, uh, Steve, thank you. I'm excited to be here. My first question is your favorite word. <laughs> My favorite word. <laughs> oh, you didn't tell me you were going to ask me to ask that one. Uh, renegade. <laughs> oh, that's not bad. A New York City stereotype that's totally true. Uh, that we are um, rough on the outside and kind on the inside. Uh, how about one that's false? Uh, that we're not very helpful. <laughs> Your best Ben Franklin invention. So I love the fact that when he was younger, he tried to invent essentially fins in a way. He was a very good swimmer and he tried to invent these wooden paddles that he could use to swim faster and they kind of worked, but they kind of hurt, you know? <laughs> so he was only a couple hundred years before ahead of rubber, but he essentially created and invented fins. I just thought that was a, a fun thing to do. Cool. Do you have another favorite Ben Franklin fact? Oh my God. I, I could go on and on and on. My main, the reason I'm so obsessed with him starts with a line that he wrote uh, called, well done is better than well said. And as a writer that just really got to me uh, about oh, 11 years ago, and then I just became obsessed with him. But the notion that marketing is a lot more, uh, a lot less about words and a lot more about the actions that you do. If you could travel back in time, where would you visit and when? Oh, God, I would love to sit in on the constitutional, uh, both uh, the Declaration of Independence, those meetings uh, with Franklin and Jefferson. Uh, I would love to have been there for the Constitutional Convention. Um, those would probably be two highlights. Your favorite non-business undergrad class that sticks with you to this day? Oh, Probably my modern European history class, just because we just we covered so much and it really helped frame the modern world in the context of the 20th century. Cool. Uh, all right, we're moving into some business improv questions. Okay. The best advertisement you've ever seen. So I'm going to cheat on this one and say Small Business Saturday because it's not really an ad, but it's an idea. And it's an idea that American Express came up with years ago. They literally came up with it in about six weeks and it's transformed and it gave small businesses a way of finding somewhere between uh, you know Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And it's generates about $20 billion in annual sales. They've been doing it now, I think 13 years. Um, and it is just, it is a perfect example of sell through service, which I talk about in my book. Best campaign you've, you've personally ever helped build or produce. So 
we um years ago when we were doing both b2b and b2c uh hsbc came to us and said hey we'd like to be perceived as we're the world's local bank but new yorkers kind of know that it's hong kong shanghai bank so we created something called the hsbc bank cab and it was uh this checker cab which is a symbol of new york which uh gave free rides to hsbc customers program had 13 years unbelievably persuasive. Anybody got a free ride, felt like they won the lottery. And, and it ended up being featured in their annual report. It got uh, millions, literally a couple hundred million uh, PR impressions because we did a search for the most knowledgeable cabbie in New York, which was hilarious at the time. So anyway, <laughs> it's again, it's not an ad campaign. It's an idea. Uh, and it's another example of sell through service. It's something that was of service to HSBC customers that ended up attracting interest pretty broadly. I want to know something weird. I worked for SBC in 2003. <laughs> yeah, there you go. My work was not brought up as one of the best, uh, most monumental things in their annual report that year. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember the bank cab? I don't, All but right. I read about it in the book and got super There you go. Well, it. we actually had to delay the launch of that um, because of the uh, invasion of Iraq. Really? Oh, that did happen that year. I remember yeah. exactly where I was. Yeah. Um, most unusual brand you've ever consulted for? Yeah, so we've worked with a lot of interesting brands. One, and I write about this in the book, this company called Utech. I mean, they talk about, they make controls for lab testers, people who do drug testing, and their controls enable these machines to be calibrated. And what was really fun about it is that they considered themselves control freaks. And so we just had fun with language and execution in terms of bringing that idea to life. But, you know, they're working with these intense technical challenges, uh, these, these controls. The most contrarian advice you've ever gotten from a CMO in one of your many, many interviews with CMOs. Uh, so yeah, it's 500 plus. Uh, recently, I think it was episode 274 with David Kerner from 75F. His advice was, don't do anything your competitors are doing. And he has large competitors or one in specific. So he didn't, he doesn't blog, they don't do social, they do, they put all their money in places where their competitors weren't. I thought that was pretty fascinating. And it's worked for them. Totally. All right. You ready to transition into the book? Can you start by describing what you were going for? What was the, what was your mission when uh, creating Renegade Marketing? And then uh, I'll ask you about some of the frameworks. Yeah, it was really pretty simple. Um, marketing, and when we looked at B2B marketing in particular, it had gotten ridiculously complicated. At least that was our perception. And this is through me talking to CMOs all the time in my interviews, uh, through what was then uh, the CMO club. And so we did some research and asked B2B CMOs, hey, uh, what's going on? And 90% said, yeah, marketing had gotten ridiculously complicated in the last two years. Then I said, so has it gotten more effective? And the answer was no. I thought, okay, so problem identified, can, I, can we solve it? And so the book is actually about four years in the making I just started with an outline of the 12 steps that ended up being in the book and I've started talking to CMOs about those things and got more and more and more data to support that this in fact could radically simplify B2B marketing. All right. Uh, what is the CATS framework and how does it work? So 
One of the things, that, uh, so this is my second book. The first book was called The CMO's Periodic Table, A Renegade Guide to Marketing. And we had 64 interviews in it that were divided up into the like a periodic table. And when I was done with the book, people said, well, Drew, I can't ask you about all 64 of these CMOs. What are the characteristics of the most successful? And at that moment, I identified this CATS framework, and then it proved to also be a perfect framework for book number two. So CATS stands for courageous, artful, thoughtful, and scientific. And those are the four characteristics that whenever I talk to successful CMOs, I can always find uh, those uh, those traits in there. And so it just became a logical framework for the book because courageous strategy is where everything starts. And and scientific method is where everything ends. And, <laughs> and then in between, you've got to be artful and then finally thoughtful. So that's the CATS framework. How'd you come up with it? I'm always interested about where a framework would come from. <sighs> well, I'm a big acronym fan, so that was part <laughs> of it. Um, I started with courage uh, because I knew that was one, and because it's such a through line, it, you can't do, you can't get an organization to focus without courage because you can't. Uh, you have to say no to somebody. You have to say no to a lot of be. I mean, the definition of strategy is essentially knowing what you can say no to. So that takes courage. And once I had courage, then it was pretty easy to think about, all right, artful, uh, thoughtful had been very much part of our approach to marketing ever since that Ben Franklin quote, because we really think about marketing and how it can be a service. And to me, that starts with thoughtfulness. Um, and certainly, uh, we had lots of evidence of that. And then the last one was just, I knew we needed something that was, uh, that was about measurement and metrics. Uh, and so scientific worked out just fine. Perfect. All right. Jumping into the, uh, to the various chapters, as we talked about ahead of time, we got way too excited. Are going to ask you a million questions. There's no way we'll make it through, but we're going to try to get as much out of you as we can in the short period we have. You got it. Uh, part one. Uh, what are some common causes, sources of clutter for executives? So this is a challenge. So see, this is a really hard time to be a chief marketing officer. And part of it is when you arrive, you're just too eager to please. And that means you're doing, people will ask you, can you do that? And that's not the right question. It's, it's what must we do? And mm. so the more you say, yeah, we can do that, the, that just sort of creates clutter in your mind and on your list. There are too many meetings. And a lot of CMOs have too many direct reports which you would say, oh, is that really the cause of clutter? It is because if you have more than six direct reports, that's six one-on-ones, that's, you know, it, it creates a lot more clutter. And it also means that you have six priorities because what you really want as a CMO is to have three priorities and then have three people who job depends on those priorities. Uh, and then life is a lot easier. I'm not saying just have three direct reports, but if something is important to you, you need to have a direct report. So anyway, those are common causes of clutter. It's the absence of those things. Interesting. Uh, one of the things you write about in the book about clutter as well as you talk about the clutter of ideas, which I found fascinating. Can you riff on that a little bit and and catch us up? Both what is the clutter of ideas and how do you cut through that? So... I talk a lot about noise and I mean, the, you know, there is so much marketing noise and I know you know this in your world of content creation. I mean, if you just start to add up the number of blog posts every single day, it, it's a little daunting. So you have that noise, but the really in organizations, you have a lot of people who think they understand marketing and, and because they watch the Super Bowl. And <laughs> uh, so the, the fight for ideas is, is, 
you know, one idea is better than three and when it comes to brands. And so focus is, is it's just so hard to get organizations to focus around a single purpose. It's just really, really hard. It takes courage, as I talked about earlier. Marketing is so hard because everybody, as you're saying, everybody's watched a Super Bowl ad. Everybody feels like it's part of it, especially like you're in the world. The engineers want to know why it's not more quantifiable. Do you have a go-to answer for the marketing team to talk about, get off my turf? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is the educational challenge that CMOs need to take on and don't often. So a lot of CMOs are, are hired by the CEO with one specific goal. Hey, drive, increase demand, period. That's it. And we're going to measure you on your ability to drive pipeline. And the the sad part of that is, yes, every marketer needs to do that, but that's maybe one fourth of their job. They can drive employee uh, engagement, endorsement, advocacy. They can drive customer engagement, endorsement, advocacy. They can drive prospect leads. And then there's this whole world of brand and they can that has impact for everything that the organization is doing from recruiting uh, employees, which is such a big problem. So the problem simply is that CMOs define their job too narrowly. And when they do that, then the, then we're just being measured by the leads uh, that they generate. And, and that's just a shame. And that's measurable, but it's a shame. Why should all marketers block off 30 minutes a day for thinking big? And how in the world do you do that? Yeah, so... Um, first of all, it's probably not enough. <laughs> it probably should be an hour. Uh, and and you can multitask when you do that. Maybe it's when you're working out. Um, I find, for example, when I, I'm most creative when I'm swimming. Um, so, you know, an hour a day if I could, and sometimes of the year I can, uh, swimming is is amazing for me to think big. So the reason is that if you don't, what you do is the little shit that's easy to do. You know, you get sucked into your email, you get sucked into the response. It's so easy. And I mean, mobile phones have just made it a disaster when it comes to time management. Part of it is also, I'm not a to-do list guy. I'm a calendar guy. If it's not on my calendar, it doesn't happen. And that's for everything in my life. And part of it also is I'm in, I'm listening to a book right now on sort of time management, just because that's such a big issue for CMOs. And I wanted to think about some tips that I could help them with. So anyway, but Blocking off that time for everything is one of the critical solutions to being more productive. Interesting. Uh, God, we all wrestle with this right now. What's the name of the book and should we all read it? I think we should all read it. It's called 15 Secrets Successful People Know About Time Management by Kevin Cruz. Perfect. We'll get it in the show notes. One other productivity hack that you already picked up from this book that you want to share as long as we're on the topic and I'm so fascinated. No, that, I mean, I was kind of checking along with everything. That's why when I said a half an hour is probably enough, he talks about an hour. The other thing he talks about is when do you do your thinking time? And a lot mm -hmm. of us save the thinking time for when our brain is less capable of thinking. So really productive people tend to put their thinking time when they're or the writing time, you know, early in the morning because that's when they're really good at it, and and so that's just another part of this is don't block off your thinking time when you're dead tired. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I do. So thank you. Why is simplicity such a hot topic, and why does it require courage? So again, the the essence of strategy. This is Drucker. It's you know, it's being able to say no. So 
it takes courage to go to your CEO when the CEO says, hey, I think we ought to do this or your CEO. And this happens a lot. And this is unfortunate. And I know you're a CEO, so you don't do this kind of thing. <laughs> but when you go to your CMO and you say, hey, my kids are on TikTok and I really think we need to have a presence there. You've jumped straight to tactic. You haven't talked strategy. You haven't chopped business challenge. And so it takes courage to be able to push back to the CEO and say, can we up-level that to the strategy that you're trying to achieve with that tactic, and then we can have a conversation. It takes courage to the to go to the CFO and say, okay, one, I need to understand how we really make money, and two, you need to understand how marketing works so that we can work together to make it a leverageable instrument in your toolkit so that someday you'll say to me, hey, I have some money left over. Should we spend it on marketing? And the marketing person will say yes or no based on where they are. That takes courage. So most CFOs sort of say, no, 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 this is a cost, not an investment. And so you got to educate them. You got to get in there. Uh, and then you have to have the courage to say, we can come up with one idea that works for customers, employees, and prospects. And by the way, our employees are our most important target audience. And you know, you'll get a CEO or investment group will say, what are you talking about? We need customers. Well, we're not going to get customers if our employees aren't happy. So that's that's the courage part of this job. What advice do you have for a CEO who's trying to be a better manager of a CMO? So I would say to you is set the big goals for the organization. What are the three things that you want to accomplish next year? What are the, you know, in the entrepreneur's operating system, it's the rocks, right? You have a one year, three year, five year plan. This is where we're going. And then what are the priorities for this year? And then support the CMO so that they have the air cover when sales comes to them or engineering comes to them and says, hey, can you do this? And you'll say, yeah, I can do it, but let's talk second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, because that's not our that's not the agreed upon rocks. These are not our goals. And you just have to support them in that. And you have to support them in having courage to have one brand story. All right. But I really want to be on TikTok. <laughs> you know what? Knock yourself out. <laughs> Hi, this is Steve. I'm interrupting myself for 30 seconds to tell you about our third annual State of Digital Content Survey. Verbalio is putting together this industry-leading report on the content industry, and I want to hear from you. So, if you work in content, whether that's at an agency, in-house, or as a freelancer, please go to our 2022 Digital Content Survey. We already have over 300 responses and we'd love to get yours. It only takes seven to eight minutes. It's easy and you can win prizes. Oh, and we're sending a free pair of socks to participants. Cool socks, not like boring tube socks. Head to verblio.com backslash survey for more. Thanks for your input and your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, back to myself. Let's talk a little bit about customer experience. What goes into truly exceptional customer experience? So in B2B, it comes down to, are you a company that is easy to do business with? And you can look at all the friction points. Like, is it hard to, is it hard to buy or do you make it easier to buy? Uh, the Gardner people, you know, uh, Brent Adamson calls that buyer enablement. But so many times in long sales cycles to enterprises, uh, the, the, it turns out the company that is selling stuff makes it really hard for the customer to buy it. This just the information that everybody on the buying committee needs isn't there. So 
Did you remove all the friction from the buying process? Did you make it easy? And then once they bought it, and this is the other part of it is, did you make it easy to activate, to train so that your customer can get the most out of your product or service? So that's just baseline stuff. That's sort of meeting expectations. Exceeding expectations is means you really understand what's going on with your customer and you are able to offer these little moments of surprise and delight. And that's uh, really a art form, but it means paying attention to the customers. This is why in the book I talk about everybody should have a customer advisory board. I talk about how if you are a mark, head of marketing, if you can be responsible for at least one customer, you'll have, you'll have direct input from that customer. But then I'll give you an example of what happened at the beginning of COVID that I think is really rich with opportunity for you to think about is the beginning of COVID, several CMOs reached out to the customers they were responsible for and said, hey, how's it going? How are you guys dealing with this? These are some of the things that we're dealing. It was on a very person-to-person level. And they said, hey, if cash flow is an issue, we'll put our product sales, uh, you know, our bills on hold. Or And you know, they'd ask something for that. But it was unexpected. And it was a recognition of empathy in a very difficult moment. And, and I think that's how you start to exceed expectations is, is with a real empathetic approach. How can organizations bake being distinct into their DNA and make it part of the culture? <sighs> so I'm going to break it down. It's a little different than a way in the book, but I try to simplify it. Is So first of all, you got to find what is, makes you distinct, right? You have to sort of, what is part of that? I mean, I one company I mentioned, I can't mention their name anymore, but the color orange just was really part of the brand. There was just a buoyant part of the thing. And it was in a category that was very staid. Um, so you have to find that and it's part of, it's part brand voice, it's how you talk, it's how you look. Um, and it's what problem or commitment you're making to employees, customers, and prospects. Now, finding it is one is part of it. Then you got to commit to it. You got to commit to it at an executive level. It's like if if the CEO says, oh, that's just the way the marketing people talk. I don't need to use that language. I don't need to wear that brand. I can have different colors in my PowerPoint presentations. You know, I don't need to include that theme in an investor meeting. Then, you know, you don't have executive commitment. Uh, then you know you got to share it. You got to get your employees excited about it. And a real litmus test, by the way, if your idea is great, is do employees get excited about it? Is, do they go, oh, that's cool. I want to be that. That's the company I work for. I'm proud of them. Uh, now, I talk about this a lot in the book that if it's just words on a page, that's a problem. In an ideal world, when you were repositioning and you were rebranding, you were recommitting to something new. And I'll give you a quick example. So uh, Aetna said, you don't join us, we join you. Nice promise. But here's what they did. They spent six months retraining employees so that when a customer called and said, hey, I need a, uh, I'm, I'm going to get a knee surgery, a, a new knee. Could you approve that expense? The customer service agent said, yes, okay, we'll approve that. And by the way, most people, when they get knee surgery, want to do um, physical therapy. Would you like a, a list of approved physical therapists in your neighborhood? That's taking it above and beyond. So if your marketing doesn't inspire any kind of new level of service, and it's probably not a real rebranding, it's just a reskinning. So that's the part about training. So you make a new promise and then you train your employees to deliver it and you train your employees to talk about it. Some 
companies actually give a little tutorial that that you have to pass like an exam um, to be able to talk about the new brand and what it means. Cool. I love all the focus that you put on services and customer experience and how that's such an important part of the brand and marketing. A lot of that stuff jumps off the page as being stuff that doesn't traditionally fit into the marketing umbrella. What parts of this should be in the marketing umbrella? How does market should marketing interact with what services that you provide and the customer experience? Well, I think it's anything that touches the consumer, your customer, it needs to have marketing's imprint. Uh, because when it doesn't, there's an inconsistency. It's like you could have this wonderful message that you're putting out on your videos, and then you go to the website and that experience isn't there. Or you have a promise out in the marketplace and they call customer service and customer service doesn't even know about it. You know, those kind of disconnects happen. So in, in my mind, the domain of the CMO is how employees think about the brand, how customers think about the brand and talk about the brand, and then prospects. So you've got those three target audiences that when they're all working together, uh, they have the same story, they believe in the story, growth happens, and it happens sort of more on a, on a, on a hockey stick level than it happens on a sort of, hey, we increased leads by 10% this year. Got it. I cannot believe how many of these topics we're actually getting through. Man, this is synced. It is, uh, it is, it is impactful and it's fast. For, the, for any of you who have not read the book, this is how the book flows too. It is uh, chock full of knowledge. It's easy to consume and it just keeps coming at you. So uh, let's keep going. I, I Now I'm ambitious. I don't want to drop any questions. What's the difference between small P purpose and big P purpose? And how okay. can a company keep those two in balance? Yeah. So first of all, purpose is so overused these days that it's almost painful. And I really, really hesitated to put it in the book because I, I I feel that a lot of brands get lost in the words and what it means. Because when you have this big P purpose, it means, oh, as an organization, we have to do something to save the world. And that's what big P purpose is. That's REI and, and others that point to their uh, or Patagonia point to their environmental record, right? It's all the c corporate responsibility stuff, uh, ESG. I'm not saying that companies shouldn't, and if they can really commit to doing that and then they can become B Corps, awesome. But if you're not a B Corp, you probably shouldn't be talking about big P purpose, but you still can find your little P purpose. And uh, an easy example is little P purpose solves a customer pain point. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about Toughbook probably a little bit more later on, but Toughbook is a little P purpose brand. It protects everything in your notebook computer. <laughs> it's that's a pain point for anybody who works in the field. You're a policeman. You're a you know fireman. You're a you're a soldier. You got a computer now with you. If it takes a bullet, can it keep working? Yeah, that's what Toughbook does. So so it's little p purpose, but it's still very important. And it can unify an organization and uh, certainly can unify a brand. Awesome. We made it to part two of the book. <laughs> All right. We've put marketing as a team sport in some job descriptions here at Verblio. Who should be on the team outside of marketing? So one of the things I talk about in the book is a couple of CMOs who had their aha moments very early upon arriving into the job. And they said, I got the idea. And they hadn't done an employee survey. They haven't done the interviews with the executive committee or the investors. And they hadn't actually even talked to customers with any kind of detail. And the problem is, even if they were right, no one would believe them. So 
part of this is when you are rebranding is to build a foundation around your idea. And that means getting the input because if the, again, I mentioned earlier, if executives around you don't buy into the idea and they just play, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. You need everybody in the organization to believe, okay, this is our new North Star. This is what we believe in. And this is how we talk. And this is how we go to market. And this is what makes us special. And you don't get that without bringing in a wide swath of the organization. Now, having said that, I'm not saying build brand by committee. I'm just saying get input. Get, make people feel part of the process. And if you can show a line from the ideas that your employees generated, uh, great. Um, so, uh, and all, obviously the CEO needs to feel part of this. They need to feel that this is also contributing value to the business. So they need to understand from the beginning where this is all going. You talk about building a brand with eight word messages, which is a part I was really interested in because I don't think I could do it. What are some great examples of pithy statements that have worked for brands and how do you build these? So let's talk first of, I'll give you a couple of examples. So well, one of my favorite is in the, in the book, I talk about case paper. Now, what I love about this is what could be more generic than a company that actually provides paper, sometimes trimmed to printers. <laughs> it's really pretty basic, right? <laughs> But this company is 77 years old. It's a family-owned business. They are uh, have incredible relationships with their customers. We had the honor of working with them, and they came to us and said, hey, we need to articulate a brand or simplify it a little bit more. And so we started looking at the brand very carefully in all our discussions. We talked to printers. We talked to employees. We talked to senior execs. And one of the things that was clear is this is a service-driven organization. Now, service isn't distinctive. But when you say case paper on the case, you go, oh, wait, on the case, I get it. It's a pun. We're on the case. But then you say, oh, what does on the case mean to employees? Well, here are three characteristics. It's not just being responsive and saying, yeah, you want me to jump 10 feet? I can do that. It's being resourceful and reliable. So we put these pillars underneath on the case, empowered employees to be on the case. And then we had some fun with the logo, we literally did something heretical. We put on the, on top of the word case. So we created a pun, a visual pun right from the beginning. And this brand had a history. So when we talk about brand voice, this brand had a history of humor um, from back in the 60s. So everything they do is very kind of dad humor punny. Uh, and it works for the brand. I mean, from an archetype standpoint, I'd call them a joker brand. Anyway, so on the case, they spent 12 months internally building on the case, creating the on the case wards, putting on the case as part of the evaluation program, all sorts of other ways to do it. Then they took it to customers. They created on the case awards for customers that were really funny. Uh, and then lastly, they took it to prospects. So they've really, it's built into their DNA now that being on the case is what they're about. And now their customers are saying, I know, I know you're on the case, which is <laughs> awesome. One other quick example, I mentioned UTAC at the beginning of this thing, and this will help how do you find these ideas. So they had been using only in promotional materials when they go to trade shows, they had been using the words control freaks. And they put it on gear. And they, it was a fun sort of promotional idea. And what we said to them is that's more than a promotional idea. That's the big brand idea. That's what you are. 
because you can explain everything that you do and want to do for your customers with those two words. You care about controls as in the product that you deliver and you're freakishly committed to it. And by the way, so are the people that they support. And then what was interesting about that particular one is we said, all right, if you're really control freaks, then you need to change your packaging. And this gets back to your earlier question. Control freaks is a promise. We're freakish about controls. So we put that, uh, suggest they change the packaging in order to make it easier for the customer to have control over their controls. So bottom line is, how do you get there? Uh, hire an agency. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's impossible, almost impossible to do this in-house because huh. it's hard to know what to look for. I mean, in the book, I borrow some of Lindy, Lindsay Peterson, who's written a great book called uh, Ironclad Brands, highly recommend the book, but I still think it's really hard to do in-house. It seems impossible to do in-house, so I'm really glad that you say that. And the answer, hire an agency, is something that I say all of the time when I get asked on how do you do your content strategy. Uh, you don't. <laughs> well, it's just, it helps to have an outside perspective. I mean, sometimes these things are just sitting around and you think you know it, but you have five of them and you can't commit. That's what we did with Control Freaks. On the case was a little bit different. We kind of knew what the framework was and we knew that they had a sense of humor and punny would be good, but they weren't going to come up with that. They inspired it, but they, they needed our help to help shape it and then help shape how do you bring that idea to life, which is the next part of it. Yeah, it reminds me of it's really hard to write your own resume and have it make sense because you the things you find impressive about yourself are actually not the things that anybody else cares about. Yeah. I mean, and I think, by the way, what's really hard is if I had put just do it in front of you on a blank piece of paper 25 years ago or whenever that thing, you might have looked at it and go, okay. <laughs> and what an agency can do, a good agency can do is imagine where the idea can go and how it can be built upon uh, years and years and years. And that's really hard to do. So you need an outside partner who can also say, mm, by the way, here are all the ways that you can execute against it. Yeah, I have five other tangents that I'm about to go on, but I'm going to stop myself because we're barely <laughs> making it to part three of the book. Uh, so one of my favorite quotes from the book is, employees make your brand promise real, which is really powerful stuff and really aligns with our people first strategy here at Verblio. Can you explain just why it's true that employees are your best evangelists? Well, let's put it a different way. If your employees don't, let's say you rebrand and your employees go, <laughs> that's a joke, we're not that. It's dead in the water. It won't get communicated. It won't be felt. And, and your customers will feel it right away. They'll know, oh, oh, that's just words. Oh, that's just the marketing people doing their thing. And that's the last thing you want because that's the biggest problem that marketing has is that nobody takes you seriously because it's so insubstantial. It's just words and pictures. It's not. It's actions. And so one of the reasons why I love it when brands, when they launch new brand campaigns, they actually train the employees and what this means and how this is going to change their evaluations. And when it starts to change their evaluations, you have your employees' attention because mm -hmm. you're going to reward the behavior that supports the new brand promise. Before we make it any further, tell us about CMO huddles, how they work and how they are a key part of the sell-through service philosophy. Yeah. So th thank you for asking. So one of the things that having been around a while, uh, a philosophy towards dealing with crises and at the beginning of uh, middle of March 2020, uh, when the lockdown started, it occurred to me that I had no idea how the agency would do, but I knew that a lot of CMOs would be in pain. 
they mm-hmm. would probably be in a lot worse shape given their pressures than we would be. So I thought, all right, what can we do? And since I've been interviewing CMOs for so long and know so many, I said, let's get together, let's huddle. So April 1st, 2020, um, we started huddling and it was just me and initially 10 and then it grew. Uh, and we met 55 times in a six month period because there were so many things. And for some of these CMOs, this was a lifeline. This was the therapy that got them through a really, really challenging time. And about halfway through that beta period, uh, the CMO said, Drew, this is a business. Stop the, you know, this, it's been nice that you've been doing it, but this is a business. Here's how you should do it. And so October 1st, 2020, we set it up as a subscription business. We're now over a hundred subscribers and it's, it's just, it's incredibly talk about big P purpose for me. This is it. (laughs) This is it. It's like helping CMOs, uh, you know, drive their brands and, and, and do a better job at, at what they do, you know, helping them be great. We call it share care dare. Uh, and it's, uh, that's what, that's, what's going on there. And I, I, it makes me really happy. <laughs> so cool. Uh, yeah, I will definitely flag for our CMO for sure. And I'll ask you on how to get there when we wrap up at the end, but that's interesting because it's really how we started. Yes. And marketing was exactly at the exact at the same time was starting these interviews with, um, with marketers about advising other marketers about how to survive the pandemic. Um, I really like what you've done with it. Thank you. So I am our director of content and loved the idea that con- content marketing fundamentally represents a service to prospects and customers. What kind of content best fills this role? So I'm going to step back and say, let's look at this strategically for a moment because digital fatigue is real and uh, all of us are feeling it. We're zoomed out, we're webinared out, we're blogged out. So I think when you look at content strategy right now, that the issue that CMOs are facing is, I have too much content that isn't getting consumed. So it right now, if I look at strategy uh, for, for content, it's fewer, better. And then what does better mean? So here's the litmus test that we have, and, and this is a good one. Would for Renegade, are we creating content that a CMO would find valuable? Like right now, a CMO, a very specific individual with these challenges, will they find it valuable? So when you're creating content and if you say, I'm going to send this to our most important clients, not prospects, clients, and will they get value out of it? And if not, or, you know, will they think it's good? It could be entertainment value, by the way. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, seven ways to uh, be more efficient with your time, although that would be very fruitful right now, but it, it, it could be work-life balance. It could be about recruiting. It could be about issues that they're facing, but they really, you know, then the last part of this is, would they want to share it with their colleagues or their peers? One of the things that we do with CMO Huddles is every Friday I send out a recap, so an email. And I know that not only do these get read, but they get shared. And to me, that's the ultimate, they get shared with their CEO, they get shared with their colleagues. That's the real litmus. Is this good content? Yeah, because it's getting shared with colleagues, with customers, with prospects. And that, so we just got to raise the bar when we talk about content. I think we have time for one question for the last phase of the book, which is great. Marketers are getting better and better at being data-driven, but sometimes that just creates more clutter. How do you make sure you're measuring the things that actually matter? So everything in the book is about sort of reversing 
the priorities that CMOs have. So most CMOs will say our priorities are driving leads and then customers and then employees. And I say, no, 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 employees, customers, and prospects in that order. Those are your, you know, those are your target audiences. And then the fourth bucket I'm going to put in for metrics is brand, because I think you have to have brand health metrics. And I talk a lot about in the book about those four buckets of employees, customers, prospects, and brand metrics and how to do them cheaply or how to do them with a little more depending on growth. So those are the things. And again, in order to get there, you have to have a CEO who says, I agree with you. Marketing can have impact on all these, all four of these areas. And I want you to be measured on all four of those areas, not just on lead gen. Got it. All right. Before we drop, jump into the wrap-up questions, are there any of the core parts of the book on questions that we didn't hit on today that you want to make sure we hit on? You know, so the last uh, section of the book is called The Scientific Method. Uh, and in the final chapter, because it's it's a little bit of a hard slog, you got to get through the metrics, you got to automate attentively. But the last chapter to me represents the promise of marketing, which is test to triumph. And, I, and I'm not talking about little tests like A-B tests or landing pages. You can do all those things. But I'm talking about testing big plans and having those be as much as 20% of your budget. So if something happens like another pandemic or something other crazy, you have options. And that's not just the reason, but that's what's really fun about marketing is for a lot of brands who are just getting into ABM, that could be the big bet. But think about your big bets and test them. And your team will get excited because you create this culture of innovation. And that's one of the wonderful things about marketing is, is that there's a lot of creativity out there and you need a place for it. That's why we, we're going to put 10 to 20% of our budget into experimentation. All right. I saw the 10 to 20%. How do you bring, I, I, I know this is the wrap up question, but how do you bring that to life? I love the concept. And then how do you get, how do you get buy-in from the company that your 20% is just, we have no idea what's going to happen with it, but we would know what would the other 80%. No, I don't think that's the case. I think you go to your CFO and you say, here's what I want to do with this 10% or 20%. And you don't necessarily spend it all on one thing, but you say, here's what I want you to fund. And here's how we're going to measure success. And there are lots of ways of measuring success, but you get a, you get, you always get your CFO to agree to the metrics that you're going to measure this by. If we do this and this happens and this was a good spend. <sighs> I love doing these podcasts. It's like better than business school. All right. The, uh, we are in the wrap up round. Uh, best piece of contrarian marketing advice. Yeah, they really watch out for personas. Uh, they can easily leave you astray. And this is very simply, let me explain that. So if you have 13 personas and you actually present your brand differently to each of those personas, you will lose on an enterprise sale. You will lose. And Gartner did the research. You will lose 2.2 times more than if you had a single brand story. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have to talk ROI with the CFO and security with the CISO, but if you're talent presenting the company in a different voice and a different, and let's say your brand is designed to have simplicity into it, but you're complicated over here with the CFO and you're simple over here, you have a problem. So personas I see as one of the things that drive brands astray. That's deeply interesting. They also feel inherently weird when you're talking about them. 
marketers that you're currently following today, in addition to all the ones you've already mentioned on the show? <laughs> so, you know, in the in the thinking about selling through service, Latney Conet over at Sixth Sense does these uh, coffee talks every Friday and has built a community of B2B CMOs that, that, and it's free. And I love it. You talk about sell through service. Um, it's done a great thing for their for their brand, but it's basically uh, one hour sessions with interesting people in front of a of a live group of people. I, I really ad admire what she's doing. Cool. What are some of the, your marketing views that are extremely different at this stage of your career than what they were at the beginning? So one of the things I don't really talk about that much in the book, um, but I really believe is true is it's more important to acquire the right customer than any customer. And I don't think a lot of companies actually think about that. The right customer is a customer that besides being a perfect product fit, right, is somebody who will, there's a chance they might be an advocate. Like don't get Eeyores as customers, right? And I don't think people think about, and a lot of times this is true for any service company, but one good customer is worth 10 uh, sort of painful customers. So acquiring the right customer, and this is a difficult thing to suss out, and it's often hard to tell at the beginning if they're going to be a good customer, but it, it may mean just like with uh, with cleansing your technology, you may need to cleanse your, your customers. What's the bobblehead doll right behind your head? I've been wanting to ask. <laughs> that's Ben Franklin. Who else could it be? That's, that's Ben Franklin. <laughs> All right. As we wrap up, Drew, where can somebody find a Ben Franklin bobblehead doll? Oh gosh, I I got this at in Philadelphia, one of the their big art gallery, the Philadelphia Art Gallery. Um, so, but I think they're available online. <laughs> Coming to store. And how else can uh, people find you in Renegade Marketing after the show? Sure. So uh, the book Renegade Marketing is on you know Amazon and pretty much every other digital uh, online sales channel in hardcover, paperback, audio, and ebook, and anything else you need about me or uh, you can find on uh, renegade.com. And for your listeners, if there was any aspect of this conversation that they enjoyed, they should just hit me up on LinkedIn, Strunizer, and I'm happy to send them a chapter that is of specific interest. Like you asked about the employee survey, or we didn't actually talk about that. Happy to send them that. Cool. What about CMOs looking for CMO huddles? Uh, CMOhuddles.com. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Great. Drew Neiser, thank you so much for being on Yes in Marketing. It was a pleasure. Steve, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for listening to Yes in Marketing. If you enjoy the show or learned something new today, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot. Thanks. Thanks.